One hot afternoon in July of 1985, 25-year-old LAPD officer Stephanie Lazarus strode into Glendale Adventist Hospital. She wasn't on duty, so Stephanie didn't show up in her regular police uniform. Instead, she opted for tight short shorts and a tank top, showing off her toned muscles. Her revealing outfit may have been an unusual choice for visiting a hospital, but Stephanie wasn't there to see a patient. She'd only shown up at Glendale Adventist to visit Sherry Rasmussen, the director of critical care nursing, and soon-to-be wife of the man Stephanie was in love with. After years spent thinking of the day she would marry John Rutten, Stephanie struggled to swallow the reality that he would soon be married to Sherry instead. She decided she would do everything in her power to stop it. Confused to see Stephanie at her hospital, Sherry politely invited the cop into her office, observing Stephanie's outfit as she closed the door. Stephanie allowed her defined muscles to do some of the threatening work for her, but unsatisfied with merely implicit menace, Stephanie warned Sherry, if I can't have John, no one else will. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our first episode covering Stephanie Lazarus, a former LAPD officer who brutally murdered her ex-lover's wife. Today, we'll take a look at Stephanie's splintered upbringing and the undoing of her relationship with her college sweetheart, John Rutten. Next week, we'll cover what happened when Stephanie's spurned love turned to violent anger. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Stephanie Lazarus's childhood was marked by displacement. Before she reached the age of five, her family moved from the West Coast in Santa Monica to the East Coast in Virginia and then back to Los Angeles again. 
Rent was high in L.A., and for a while, Stephanie, her parents, and two younger siblings lived in a small two-bedroom apartment just to make ends meet. By 1970, Stephanie's parents had saved enough money to buy a house of their own in the budding bedroom community of Simi Valley. Ten-year-old Stephanie forged the way for her younger siblings in their new neighborhood by making friends with all the kids in their subdivision. Soon enough, the three Lazarus siblings fit right in, playing till late at night with the other kids on their block. And when Stephanie wasn't outside chasing after her neighborhood friends, she was sitting in front of the TV watching sports with her dad. Her father loved a good game. In fact, as a former athlete, Shelton prized sports and seemed to have a specific devotion to baseball, which he passed to Stephanie. Their shared love for the sport won Stephanie attention from her father. Wanting more, she tried out for a local all-star softball team and made it. But Shelton's plan to see Stephanie succeed in the sport was more about satisfying and nurturing his own ego, not so much that of his kids. Before we continue with any psychology, please note that I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Because Stephanie's father, Shelton, had a personal relationship with baseball, he likely placed more pressure on Stephanie to succeed in softball. He wasn't able to separate his daughter's interest in the sport from his own competitive will. As far as Shelton was concerned, if he was going to pay for his daughter to play on a team, she'd better play well. It was with this line of thinking that Shelton unconsciously instilled his own needs in Stephanie. In turn, Stephanie put her mind to the task of winning, pushing past every barrier in order to please her dad. She cultivated an ability to overcome conflicts that prevented peak performance, including hard emotions. This skill is often referenced in sports psychology, and it's called mental toughness. But while Stephanie's mastery with it may have helped her score points with her father, it may have had a detrimental effect on her well-being. Psychologist and researcher Mark B. Anderson suggests that mental toughness may be detrimental to a child's psychology. This is because it causes a child athlete to push through, refusing to quit until a goal has been achieved. While beneficial in athletics, the mentality may unconsciously condition a kid to take excessive or unrealistic means to achieve a goal. This characteristic would follow Stephanie well into her adult life, even away from stadiums and courts. But in the 70s, Stephanie perfected her mental toughness, using her vast reserves of it in her all-star softball league. Stephanie's notable resilience in the face of obstacles made her a valuable team player. Every year, her team managed to make it to the exclusive postseason tournament in Buena Park, California. Her father, Shelton, attended less than half of her games, but the annual playoff event was an important affair for Stephanie's siblings. Since it was out of town, it made for a cheap getaway, a plus for the low-income family of five. But Shelton's attendance wasn't necessarily a good thing. Unfortunately for Stephanie, Shelton always let his competitive nature get the best of him. Whenever an umpire made a bad call, Shelton angrily shouted his dissent. 
Perhaps tired of his aggressive antics, when high school came, Stephanie retired her softball uniform. She took up basketball and tennis instead, which proved advantageous to her athletic career. She made varsity on both teams as a sophomore. But the major victories were overshadowed by heavy news. By October 1975, when Stephanie was 15, her parents divorced. Stephanie internalized the disillusion of her parents' marriage the same way she treated losses in sports. She stayed tough. As Matthew McGough reports in his book about the case, The Lazarus Files, Stephanie's brother didn't tell any friends about the divorce for at least a year. It's likely that Stephanie also didn't allow herself to share her familial troubles with her friends at school. Despite her silence, Stephanie and her siblings were greatly affected by the divorce, especially because soon after, they were faced with a difficult choice. Their parents told them that they would have to pick whether they wanted to live with their mother or their father. Stephanie's younger sister and brother opted to stay with their father at the family's Simi Valley home. Stephanie, on the other hand, elected to live with her mother, Carol. Soon after, the two loaded their car with their bags and headed across town. And just like that, Stephanie's life as she'd known it was no more. It's unclear what exactly was said between Stephanie and her father, Shelton, prior to the move. We do know that for the rest of her high school years, Shelton wasn't a part of her life. Furthermore, Stephanie barely saw her siblings. That meant that it was largely just 15-year-old Stephanie and her mother spending time alone in their two-bedroom condo. A year later, 16-year-old Stephanie found a solution to her difficult home life, a car. When she spotted a used Chevy Nova for sale one day, it surprised her that the cost was in her price range, but only because the engine needed significant repair. Undeterred, Stephanie bought the car and fixed it up all by herself in her school's auto shop. Within a few weeks, she had a perfectly functioning vehicle. Now she could leave her mom's house as she pleased and spend more time with her friends. But even though the car granted her a greater deal of autonomy, Stephanie dreamed of the day she would leave home for good and go to college. Her divorced parents didn't really have the money to pay for her education, but she didn't let that stop her. In the fall of her senior year, in 1977, she set her sights on UCLA and applied for as many scholarships as she could. In the spring of 1978, 17-year-old Stephanie received her acceptance letter to UCLA. Majoring in political science and sociology, Stephanie had only one career in mind. She wanted to become an attorney but a new obsession would derail all her plans. Coming up, Stephanie befriends the man that would eventually drive her to murder. Now, back to the story. In September 1987, 18-year-old Stephanie Lazarus moved from her mom's apartment in Simi Valley to a dorm room at UCLA. Stephanie most likely internalized deep-seated wounds and feelings of abandonment after her parents' divorce and her father's sudden absence from her life. 
The erratic nature of her father's love might have created an ambivalent, anxious attachment style in Stephanie. Attachment theory states that those with ambivalent, anxious attachment styles often feel distrustful of their parents, so they cling to them desperately. This might seem counterintuitive, but it isn't. People with ambivalent, anxious attachment live in constant fear that the person they love might leave them. As a result, they're simultaneously suspicious of and possessive over any love they receive. Due to her father's inconsistent parenting, this style of attachment likely manifested in Stephanie, potentially causing her to believe that everyone she loved would eventually leave her. In the midst of internalizing this warped understanding of love, 18-year-old Stephanie Lazarus moved into Dykstra Hall at UCLA in the fall of 1978. On the 10th floor of the Jock Dorm that year, Stephanie befriended a wide network of athletic friends. More than good grades, Stephanie wanted to belong. Soon, she solidified her reputation as a friendly gal with a ruthless sense of humor. One of the guys she got closest to that first year was John Rutten, a tanned six-foot-three mechanical engineering major from San Diego. Already a sophomore, John had a year up on Stephanie. Their mutual love of sports further deepened their connection. The two often played impromptu basketball games. At times, Stephanie would ask John to come running with her. Then, side by side, they would take to the quad, breathing in unison. The large amount of time they spent together wasn't unusual at first. Eventually, however, their shared friends could detect that Stephanie seemed to want something more with John. Yet for all of their close moments forging a friendship that year, John never considered Stephanie his girlfriend. One day on the basketball court behind Dykstra Hall, Stephanie posted John up, holding the ball with her back to the basket. As she closed in on the hoop, she backed into John, instigating an unusual amount of physical contact with him. John didn't show any sign of discomfort. After all, he and Steph had become close over the past month. He entertained her antics, reaching for the ball to toss it out of her hands. But Stephanie knew how to play this game. She backed herself even closer into him, but just before their mutual friend Matt could make a comment on her bold moves, Stephanie set her sights on the net. In a fast maneuver, she dribbled and shot for the hoop with a gratifying swoosh. Stephanie had won the game, and as she headed back to her dorm room in Dykstra Hall that afternoon, she might have considered the physical contact with John a win of its own. Meanwhile, the boys hung back on the court. Like a typical college bachelor, John's friend Matt sometimes pestered him about his relationship with Stephanie. But John was always quick to deny it, once cruelly stating, Steph has a great body, but the face just doesn't cut it. But John's denial wasn't fully accurate. He may not have made Stephanie his girlfriend, but they did occasionally make out. Even during that first year she spent at UCLA, Stephanie's rare physical encounters with John intensified her feelings for him. Soon, she began to act on them. 
One time when John was sleeping, Stephanie snuck into his dorm room and found him lying on the couch in his underwear. Any typical friend might have woken their buddy and told him to put on some clothes or left their companion to dream. Stephanie did neither. Instead, she grabbed a camera from her room and snapped a photo of John. It remains unclear whether this was motivated by Stephanie's bold sense of humor or her budding affection for him. On the back of the photo print, she wrote the words, John Rutten, 1979, Dykstra Hall. I snuck in the room and took the picture. Her behavior teetered on a thin line between harmless prankster and dangerous stalker. But Stephanie didn't stop there. Another time when John was showering, Stephanie entered the communal bathrooms. She searched for John and, upon finding him, made eye contact. Then, snickering, she stole his clothes and ran, forcing John to leave the showers that day wearing only a towel. To Stephanie, her jests were all in good fun. Stephanie framed her acts of invasiveness as a hilarious joke. John never seemed to display any discomfort with them. Later, he even started attending her basketball games once Stephanie made the varsity team. Around this time, John also let Stephanie accompany him on road trips down to San Diego, where his family lived. On this particular trip, Stephanie made it her mission to forge relationships with two of his siblings, Janet and Tom, as well as his mother, Margaret. She found belonging within John's family dynamic that she hadn't had within her own. The relationship wasn't just about John anymore, it was about the life she imagined sharing with him. At the time, John's siblings seemed to think the two were more than just good friends. But that wasn't what Stephanie thought, and she wasn't totally off base. Between attending her games, inviting her to off-campus hangouts, occasionally making out with her, and inviting her to meet his family, Stephanie rightfully foresaw a relationship forming. John's actions suggested that he wanted something more than companionship, even though in public he acted somewhat colder. These mixed signals were a bit like the provisions of inconsistent love Stephanie's father had shown her throughout her childhood. And just as she once latched onto her father's affection with desperation, she clung to John like a child needing to know she was valued. Misled, 19-year-old Stephanie took a leap of faith and professed her feelings to John during her sophomore year. While she never shared exactly what John told her, Stephanie did confide in their mutual friend David Newman after it happened. One day, while Stephanie and David grabbed lunch in the dorm's dining hall, she admitted that she was upset that John didn't want a romantic relationship with her. But there wasn't much David could do to comfort her. After all, he couldn't change the way John felt. When the three took a road trip together up to San Francisco that same year, David thought that everything seemed fine between Stephanie and John. If Stephanie was upset about her unrequited feelings, she didn't convey it. Stephanie had a history of repressing emotional conflicts, like potentially keeping her parents' divorce a secret from her friends. So after John's rejection, we can assume that she wouldn't have outwardly displayed distress. Her mental toughness was, once again, at play. 
But this time, so was her anxious avoidant attachment style. As John filled the void her father had left, she placed her trust in him. But when John refused to enter into a relationship, it frayed that trust. Rather than recognize her worth and move on, Stephanie acted on the patterning she developed as a child. Growing up, if Stephanie's father didn't provide affection, she would look for ways to be worthy of his love. This likely drove her athletic pursuits as a child. And with John, Stephanie did everything she could to be the perfect partner and win his love. But this wasn't an easy task. She couldn't just join a sports team as she had done to please her father. Even though she wanted to change John's mind about being with her, she was at a loss for what to do to win his heart. So Stephanie remained a part of John's life and dined on the scraps he was willing to throw her. She continued fooling around with him, even as he refused to be in an official relationship with her. When John graduated and moved into his first apartment in Canoga Park, Stephanie might have feared that their infrequent hookup sessions would come to an end. Instead, their activities escalated. It was in the off-campus apartment that 22-year-old Stephanie and John had sex for the first time. Perhaps Stephanie thought physical intimacy would lead to emotional intimacy between her and John. Maybe she hoped that away from his friends, in a place of his own, he would be able to profess the feelings he always had for her. If those were the dreams Stephanie was spinning for herself, she was soon confronted with a harsh reality. John never professed any deeper feelings than friendship. And when Stephanie graduated UCLA in June of 1982, it was in that capacity that John attended her graduation. He came as a friend. Too caught up planning her post-grad career, Stephanie probably didn't give much thought to the way her relationship with John wasn't developing. They still saw each other two or three times a month and even sometimes wound up in bed. But all the while, John kept dating other women. He wouldn't tell Stephanie about his other relationships. His silence wasn't out of a sense of guilt. John just didn't feel like he owed Stephanie an explanation. On the rare occasions that he did feel guilty about Stephanie's unrequited love, John would cut off communication with her for weeks at a time. Still, they always floated back to one another, probably because they had already established a companionship and were both in need of company. When she was 23, Stephanie quit her post-grad job at a law firm to pursue law enforcement. In February of 1983, she applied to the LAPD. Given her affinity for both physical activity and legal affairs, the squad car seemed like a more natural fit for her than the courtroom. And by that spring, Stephanie had been accepted into the police training program. In a rigorous six-month training course, she was tested both individually and among her peers, learning more about the law, patrolling, operating firearms, and engaging in self-defense. Those who took the program with her noted that she excelled in the grueling physical coursework. Endless runs on academy grounds, wall climbs, combat wrestling, and firearm training all challenged her to reach her peak performance. 
By the end of that year, Stephanie prepared to graduate from training and join the force. Her good spirits only grew when John invited her to his company's holiday party that December. The two had their portrait taken there, and for Stephanie, it was the perfect way to end a year. That same winter, on January 20th, 1984, Stephanie experienced yet another victory when she received her first department commendation. An officer praised her excellent appearance during formal inspection. It was the professional validation she'd been craving for a long time. But one positive comment on her file made her hungry for more gleaming feedback. Stephanie was determined to be the best police officer she could be. She wanted nothing more than to fully belong to the police force that had granted her a professional home. So when an instructor at the police academy advised the young officers to start keeping a journal to record their day-to-day -day experiences on duty, Stephanie took the tip very seriously. In November 1984, 24-year-old Stephanie started a journal in it, she reflected daily on what happened during her shifts. Also around this time, she underwent a significant change in behavior. In the same way she took on her father's love of baseball to gain his love, Stephanie mimicked the attitudes of the cocky male cops in a bid for acceptance. This attitude bled into her fieldwork, and Stephanie sometimes wrote racist, degrading comments in her journal. One entry read, I wrote a ticket to this oriental woman who ran three stop signs, no lights, U-turn in a business district. She was pathetic. In another, she delighted in evading a speeding ticket because of her LAPD status. She acted as though she was above the law, and no one ever called her on it. Meanwhile, the anxious attachment style her father had instilled re-emerged as she sought validation from the force. All of Stephanie's journaled interactions with the male officers conveyed a desperation to be liked and accepted in the group. For a while, John had been that source of masculine affirmation in her life. But by the spring of 1984, she wasn't sure she could count on John for anything. He had stopped calling her. Before long, Stephanie discovered why. John Rutten the man she'd spent more than five years loving, had a new girlfriend. Coming up, tensions rise as Stephanie spirals from John's rejection. Now, back to the story. Stephanie Lazarus spent the duration of her college experience nurturing feelings for John Rutten. Even now, years removed from college, 24-year-old Stephanie thought an eventual relationship might still be in the cards for them. So when they suddenly grew apart in the spring of 1984, she took notice. But she wasn't yet concerned, busy enough getting her kicks from her new cop buddies. Eventually, however, she needed answers. Stephanie needed to know why John was ignoring her calls. Shortly after, Stephanie received her answer. John Rutten had a new girlfriend. To soothe her heartache, Stephanie likely told herself that John's relationship would come to an end. She'd have him back soon enough. 
Unfortunately for Stephanie, John wasn't planning on leaving his new sweetheart anytime soon. In the winter of 1984, John Rutten shared his first holiday season with his girlfriend of seven months. He'd met her at a party in the springtime, and the two hit it off right away. It was hard not to be charmed by Sherry Rasmussen. The blonde, six-foot-tall nurse displayed confidence in herself, determination in her career, and genuine care for others. She was everything John himself wanted to be, and he admired her for it. Meanwhile, Stephanie stewed in her anguish, growing increasingly distracted from her police work. By May of 1985, 25-year-old Stephanie's sadness had turned to irritation. In her mind, John couldn't possibly still be dating this woman, but if he wasn't willing to reach out, she'd do it herself. The police force had granted her a one-officer patrol car, which meant that she was able to work shifts alone. Even though she was on duty, Stephanie decided it was the perfect time to check in on John Rutten. So she drove over to his Canoga Park apartment. Her unannounced visit was a mistake. When she arrived at his place, where they'd had sex some 25 times in the past three years, Stephanie met John's girlfriend, Sherry. Not much is known about the encounter, but we can certainly assume that it was uncomfortable for both women. For Stephanie, any hope she'd had about getting back with John now seemed like a foolish wish. That night, she wrote in her journal, I really can't remember if I did anything else work-wise. I did visit John Rutten, but his girlfriend was over. Her bitter tone was palpable, but so was her lack of detail. Perhaps Stephanie didn't provide an in-depth recounting of her soured visit because she didn't want to remember anything about his girlfriend. Though John had basically cut off all communication with her, she hadn't allowed herself to believe he had fully moved on. Whoever this Sherry gal was, Stephanie wanted her gone from John's life. But troubling as it may have been to Stephanie, John was happy. On Memorial Day weekend in May 1985, Sherry and John took their families out on the Rasmussen's boat. The weather that day was overcast. Despite the gloomy weather, Sherry and John were in high spirits. Around midday, they announced their engagement. The two families decided to sail to shore so they could have a celebratory dinner. But plans changed when suddenly they heard a strange sputtering noise. In the distance overhead, a fighter jet appeared to be attempting an emergency landing at the North Island Naval Air Station. Flames spewed out the back of the jet and ignited a wing. Finally, the aircraft fell toward the water at a right angle. In a matter of 20 seconds, the fighter jet crashed into the water, killing its pilot in the process. It was as though the world itself had been trying to issue Sherry an omen. Their engagement was clouded that day by the tragedy, and soon a whole new storm would darken the skies of the soon-to-be newlyweds. 
On June 4, 1985, less than two weeks after John and Sherry announced their engagement, Stephanie heard the news through the grapevine. Unprepared for this information, she was distracted at work. In her journal, she scrawled, I found out that John is getting married. I was very depressed. This is very bad. My concentration was negative 10. Still, Stephanie tried to rectify the situation. A few weeks later, she called John in tears, begging to see him. Concerned by his friend's emotional state, John obliged and went to see her that same evening. When he arrived, Stephanie professed the love she'd had for him over the past five years. Long aware of Stephanie's feelings, John remained unmoved. Even in light of her ardent confession, he insisted that he wanted to marry Sherry. So Stephanie took another tact. Pretending to accept his decision, she asked him to have sex with her just one last time. John agreed, thinking it might provide her closure. Instead, his actions had the opposite effect. John left that evening feeling guilty. Perhaps to assuage his guilt, he moved into Sherry's condo shortly after. As for Stephanie, the encounter left her more conflicted than ever. Fixated on her desire for John, Stephanie decided it would be best to warn Sherry she had competition. So in late summer 1985, Stephanie did exactly that. She showed up at Glendale Adventist Hospital, where Sherry worked as director of critical care nursing. With a job she loved and a wedding to plan, Sherry's life appeared to be in full bloom. But when she returned from lunch, an ominous revelation awaited her. It was during that confrontation at the hospital that Stephanie admitted to three things. One, that she had slept with Sherry's fiancé, John. Two, that Stephanie believed Sherry's marriage to John would fail. And three, that she would be there to pick up the pieces when it did. As the months progressed, Stephanie continued randomly popping up in Sherry's life. She showed up unannounced in places like parking lots and the aisles of stores. It's appropriate to compare her behavior to that of a stalker. According to criminal psychologist Dr. Christine Keenlan, there may be a predisposing factor for stalking behavior, making it difficult for the person to establish and maintain healthy relationships. Her research reveals that most stalkers experience severe disruptions in their relationships with their caretakers during childhood. She suggests, quote, the stalker's parents may have divorced and the custodial parent may have had little contact with the child. While the split between Stephanie's mom and dad alone hadn't induced her inappropriate behaviors, her father's subsequent absence from her life afterwards damaged her irreparably. This was Stephanie's situation to a T. The stalking behavior itself, however, is usually incited by a specific event that upsets a stalker, making it hard for them to move past it amicably. For Stephanie, news of the engagement was a bombshell, and she was not able to overcome the feelings of resentment she felt for Sherry and betrayal she felt from John. When John found out that Stephanie told Sherry about their breakup sex, 
he begged Sherry not to leave him, and though she was hurt, Sherry reluctantly went through with the engagement. As they prepared for their wedding, Stephanie faded from their lives and minds. Months later, on November 23, 1985, the two were married, but the honeymoon phase was short-lived. Stalkers, after all, have a way of showing up when least expected. Though Sherry and John hadn't heard from the scorned lady cop for months, she was about to resurface in their lives. She was ready to follow through on her threat. If she couldn't have John, no one could. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of the Stephanie Lazarus story. We'll see the drastic actions Stephanie took to get revenge, the failed investigation into her crimes, and the re-emergence of the case decades later. For more information on Stephanie Lazarus, among the many sources we used, we found The Lazarus Files, a cold case investigation by Matthew McGuff, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 